I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, mate. 50 episodes in. We just can do this. Is it recording? Yeah. Marvelous. Okay. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about me, Danny Moran. I'm a lazy, pot-smoking veterinarian who spends his days hanging on the local female tourists. However, my view of the world has turned upside down when I meet the sweet and delightful Sam Foster at my local cafe. We hit it off and spend a romantic day together. I've never felt this way about a person before. Could it be love? I return the following day to discover Sam has absolutely no recollection of meeting me. Her lisping, steroid-addicted brother informs me this is because Sam suffers from anterograde amnesia, a condition where he wakes up every day thinking it was October the 13th of last year. Unperturbed by this obstacle, I set about wooing Sam day after day in new, original, and exciting ways. Is what I would be saying if this were a adaptation of the Adam Sandler Drew Barrymore rom-com 50 First Dates. This is in fact just the 50th episode of a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Dame Moran, and joining me is my adorable but forgetful friend, Sam Foster. Two most significant events of the 21st century. Sharknado comes out, and this, the 50th episode of Film Chat. This historic episode, although dominated by the kind of partying that will make the Wolf of Wall Street look like driving this daisy, will also feature reviews of Steve Jobs, starring Aaron Sorkin as a load of shouting men striding in and out of rooms, and The Lady in the Van, which I believe is a documentary about what our producer Katie has been up to for the last couple of months. Plus, we play the world's smallest violin for Jesse Eisenberg, and we make a kind of mocking sliding trombone sound at the latest news of a completely unnecessary remake. And if we've got time, I'll be taking you through my list of the top 50 films starring a 50-year-old actor who says the word 50, 50 times. I won't tell you how long it took me to compile that list, so I sure hope it makes the final edit of the podcast. Thank you. Woo! Thank you. Woo! Thank you. Yeah! 50 is yeah! <laughs> films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Woo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long, we've got films up to your gills with films, 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 films. So, Katie's back. Katie's back. Hey, hi, Katie. Hey. Hi. Above mic. Great to have you. It's wonderful to be back in your bedroom. Thank God you've come back. Yeah. I'm we sure were they... hanging on by a thread. 
it's already um, probably noticeable that it sounds a lot better than it did um, in our past eight or so episodes. We've had some correspondences. Uh, the first most pressing bit of business is that we've come under attack from Jesse Eisenberg. He's That's attacked true. Yes. critics. He has which some critics. We're technically, I mean, can we? Yeah, sure, we're critics. We've got fucking 50 podcasts now. We've got opinions, right? We've got opinions. And they're out there. Anyway, anyway yes. Eisenberg, he uh, wrote a hilarious satire of called a honest review an honest review yeah it was written in that tone about a sort of fat loser who goes to review a film and he's just uh distracted by stuff going on in his own life yes so he doesn't rewrite honest review sam because he's a fat loser who just is too busy trying to hit on the girl organizing the screening instead of actually giving an honest review and so it I causes think, a bit yeah. of a furore on Twitter because he's like attacking the critics and the yeah. critics don't like to be criticised. No, they certainly don't, ironically. That's probably what he was thinking. Taste your own medicine, critics. Yeah. Do you reckon he read a review of Now You See Me or something that was <laughs> itself written in a kind of bitter satirical style? I'm sure it was. Um, and then he was like, I'm going to do that to you guys. See how you like it. Yeah. I don't know. Um... He's, he's basically making this case that film critics, they're not really thinking about the film. They're just going in and they're just... Uh, reacting in a very shallow way and then writing that up and sort of chasing it up and publishing it. Feels like he's he's got a bit of a axe to grind. Yeah. And a chip, chip on, on his shoulder. shoulder. He's grinding his axe. <laughs> and, and a bone some, to pick. <laughs> <laughs> some little chips of wood from the grinding. Um, I don't know, he's chopping wood, something like that. Yeah, Dougal um, commented on this. Mm-hmm. We always want to hear from Dougal. We do, yeah. Dougal said this. Funny, but quite mean and a tad snobbish. Stars need critics to promote their work. I love to think film is a closed-loop dialogue between artists and audience, but it isn't. There are lots of bad critics, but there are lots of good ones. I think he's probably talking about us then. Like, mm. He underlined good ones uh, seven times. I think instead of How lots of, he should have said two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not as if the film industry only produces gold either. Good point. I mean, when's the last good Jesse Eisenberg movie? American X? American X? It wasn't even that movie. Social- American Ultra? So, uh, Social Network is... Well, if it was American Ultra, then he's doing pretty good, because that movie <laughs> came out like two months ago. I'm just thinking of the most recent Eisenberg movies. Yeah, American Ultra was, wasn't that well, good. Well, that wasn't, wasn't very well reviewed. He probably resented that. The Double was quite well reviewed. Yeah, that was supposed to be pretty good. I don't, I think I don't know. There's something just intrinsically... There's something intrinsically lame about um, complaining about your work being criticised, as that's just something you have to deal with if you're an yeah. artist. And also, it's not funny, his piece. That's the big problem. It's not funny. It's not that funny. Maybe, Danny, why don't you read the, just the last paragraph of it, which gives you a kind of flavour of... Uh, Absolutely. Shall I adopt the tone in which it's written? Yeah, please do, yeah. In sum, these are the main problems with Paintings of Coal. It was inconveniently shown on the Upper West Side, written by a guy I envy, screened by a cute intern whose name was too confusing to remember, based on an idea that I poorly executed in grad school and praised by the Times, which rejected me. Eisenberg, say better. Yeah. He's an unlikable sword, I feel, which is his value in films. Yeah. He's good, good as jerks. Good jerks. Do you think he was writing that in the persona <laughs> of Lex Luthor? That was just some prep work he'd done, which somehow got published. <laughs> he's he's playing Lex Luthor as a kind of whiny teen. Yeah. Superman. Superman. You're so lame. Oh, Superman is like this. I think that's gonna <laughs> that's how we'll play it in the movie. So he's probably in that mind space. Absolutely. Anyway, we love you, Eisenberg. Good work. Stella Ramsden wrote in on our Facebook page asking us what our favorite movies are from the fifties which is a great decade for movies. Appropriate, because this is the 50th episode of Film Chat. Do you know what's embarrassing? I just got that. 
<laughs> I didn't make the 50 50 connection. You didn't make the connection. Didn't at all. Well, that's a bit of a weird question. Funny Whatever. Question, but interesting. <laughs> I'll check that out. <laughs> I'm a slow day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I obviously leapt to the internet. Me too. Um, leapt straight to it. And uh, I don't know. I, um, it's the most obvious thing ever, but I was sort of looking and I was like, wow, there's a lot of incredibly good films made in the 1950s. There is. What's on, what's on, what's on your list? My, f- my fave would be Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. Good That's choice. That's an absolute masterpiece. And uh, also Some Like a Hot. Yes. That's, you know. Those are up there on mine. I would also highlight The Seven Samurai um, as being a pretty incredible movie in the 50s. And uh, All About Eve is also 1950. And also 12 Angry Men. Which is a great movie, but uh, actually remade uh, much better in sixty seconds by us, like ten years ago. Yeah, unfortunately, it was eclipsed by a sixty-second remake that we did over the course of one afternoon in about two thousand and five. But <sighs> but but it is still pretty good. Also, the decade of Rear Window. Yeah, this is know, like when Hitchcock was just Hitchcock. knocking out knocking out of the park. Yeah, he was just knocking one out every morning. <laughs> At the time, <laughs> some of those got turned into movies that were quite successful. He made in this decade Strangers on the Train, The Man Who Knew Too Much, North by Northwest, Vertigo, Rear Window, and Dial M for Murder. That's mm. like, and then like Psycho was 1960. It's like this sort of decade of his greatest hits, really. Yeah, but fortunately, Psycho, you're out of this discussion. In 10 episodes' time, we can discuss you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Anyway, thanks, Stella. So there's a lot of recommendations here. Yeah, Stella. go watch all those movies. Go watch all those movies, Stella. So more questions. <laughs> more questions. Dan Noel wrote in to ask, "What are your favorite movie sequel subtitles? You know what I mean? That trope where they can't just put a number at the end of the movie. It's got to have some cool or bizarre words slapped on too. Some of my favorites are Season of the Witch, Secret of the Ooze, The Quickening, and Electric Boogaloo. I've never seen any of those films. I feel like they can never live up to their titles." Well, oh. we should we should probably clarify for our listeners that Electric Boogaloo is the sequel name for Break In Two, a break dancing film. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo presumably being the move that they do in it, the signature move. Yeah. When they plug themselves in <laughs> and they just boogaloo. I don't know. I don't yeah, really know yeah. what it means. So I've been waiting years for this question. I haven't really. You're also tapping away on the internet. You finished your work on the 50s movies. Yeah. my One of my favorite... Uh, the first thing that sprang to mind was, are you familiar with the Dark Man trilogy? That movie Dark Man? Yeah, it's a Sam Raimi movie and yeah. Liam Neeson gets scarred by acid and becomes a superhero covered in bandages or something. So anyway, the sequel is called Dark Man 2, The Return of Durant. Yeah. And you need to know that Durant is the villain from the first movie. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And then the third one's called Dark Man 3, Die, Dark Man, Die. That's a good name. That's a sick German title. for the Dark Man, the. <laughs> Nobody speaks German could be evil. Uh, also, are you familiar with the 80s sci-fi film Fortress? I'm not that familiar with it, no. It's a great movie. It stars Christopher Lambert, or Lambert, back when he was in movies. Yeah. You know, the guy from Subway. And Highlander. In the original Fortress, him and his wife get imprisoned in a top security fortress. It's like a high-tech prison, yeah. and it's underground in this bunker. And then in the sequel, they're like, how can we top this? It's a prison in space. Wow. Awesome. So it's called Fortress 2 re-entry because they go back to prison and also i looked up the death wish uh sequel names so there's death wish uh death wish 2 death wish 3 death wish 4 the crackdown and death wish 5 face of death yes death wish 5 face of death is a great film yeah we've, we've that's, seen I, that's seen the only that. death wish movie i've seen yeah i recommend to any listener they go and check it out charles bronson's getting on a little bit <laughs> he's sort of a bit fat he's not really in shape for revenge he's just a kind of schlubby uh, middle-aged grumpy man there's a wonderful scene in it where they play a lot of very very <laughs> tense music and so you know he's about to do something that will constitute revenge 
and he just goes to a child's toy store, wanders up and down the aisles, eventually decides to buy a remote control football, (laughs) (laughs) and then (laughs) tries it out on the floor of the shop, drives it up and down, really doom-laden music, and you're like, oh my god, something awful's about to happen, but it doesn't really happen until the next scene, when he puts a bomb in the football. Sorry for the spoiler. Spoiler alert, Sam. Spoiler alert. So thanks very much for that, Dan. You're a, you're a diamond. Okay, finally, got some quick-fire questions to answer from Georgia Mills. Georgia asks, what is the safest film? That's obviously Safe, the Jason Statham film. Obviously, yeah, or Safe House, starring Ryan Reynolds and Denzel Washington. Yes, or Panic Room, which is about a safe house, although not a very safe yeah. film in other ways. No. Uh, she also asks, what is the meanest film? I would suggest that the top contenders for that title would be Mean Machine, Mean Streets, Mean Girls. Um, mean Myself and Irene. Yeah, Mean Myself and Irene. That's also, that's also probably up there. Thank you, everyone who wrote in. That was brilliant. That was a big crop. It's good to have it for the 50th episode. And um, I hope you're all well. God bless you. God bless you. Superhero films announced Casting rumours leaking out M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped Matt Damon's in a viral vid Michael Bay's made a mint That's the news that's been to print So, uh, more controversial remake news This sort of news item comes up every now and again um, When they decide to take a relatively successful film from the past That is much loved And do a new version of it for no particular conceivable reason That will probably do terribly So, the latest example of that is Memento It's been bought by some company called Ambi Pictures And they're planning to do a remake of it For those not familiar with Memento It's one of Christopher Nolan's early films Mr. Batman himself, Mr. Interstellar Mr. Inception, all those other names he adopts. Mr. Prestige. (laughs) Based on the titles of the films he's made. Stars Guy Pearce as a man who has amnesia. He has um, sort of short-term memory loss. He's unable to make new memories. He can't make new memories. He only has long-term memories. And he's trying to piece together what happened the night his wife was killed. And he got, like, his brain was damaged. You know, gave him the memory issue. And the whole film is told backwards in kind of five-minute sections. And it's an ingenious bit of film engineering it's really brilliant um yeah, absolutely i think it's highly recommended yeah yeah could definitely be argued that it's christopher Nolan's top film so a lot of people love that movie for obvious reasons but for some reason they've decided to make a new one ambi pictures andrea yervolino said memento has been consistently ranked as one of the best films of its decade people who have seen memento 10 times still feel they need to see it one more time does that mean that he thinks 11 times is the appropriate time <laughs> to see memento This is a quality we feel really supports and justifies a remake. Why? (laughs) The bar is set high thanks to the brilliance of Christopher Nolan, but we wouldn't want it any other way. Uh, Monica Bacardi, who also works for Abbey Pictures, says, Memento is a masterpiece that leaves audiences guessing not just throughout the film, but long after as well, which is a testament to its daring approach. (laughs) It's such empty... (laughs) It's just totally empty and meaningless. It feels and like she carries on with a bunch of other nonsense. It sounds like the beginning of these statements are people against the film. Yeah. And then at the last minute, it's like, and that's why it's a great idea. They've, um, the same company has also picked up the rights to various other films. These are all obvious candidates for remakes, right? Sure. Cruel Intentions, I Heart Huckabees. You really want to say a remake of that, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> the Passion of the Christ, Rush, Robot and Frank. <laughs> that, that Frank Langella film where he's like a bit seen off and he has a robot friend. <laughs> And Donnie Darko. Why, why are they the writers of The Passion of the Christ? <laughs> <laughs> it's the 
the Bible. Yeah. That's not a copyright, isn't why, it? Yeah, why would you want a remake? Can't you just do a new version of it? I don't know. <laughs> that's so good. That's really good. But that's not the only fun thing about this um, particular company. <laughs> they only launched in 2013 by those two uh, people I just mentioned, Andrea Iovolino and Monica Bacardi. And they, um, according to their website, they have rapidly put together a robust slate of films they are financing in, financing and producing. Their production arm produced eight feature films in 2014, right? So, okay. According to the website, these all sound, to me, the titles all sound totally made up. <laughs> and they all have really famous people in them. <laughs> so I really enjoyed this, okay? These are all from 2014. I've never heard of any of these films. Like, have they come out? If they're produced in that year, does that mean they will have come out? I don't know. Maybe not. Know. So they include In Dubious Battle. An adaptation of a, a classic novel, apparently, which I've never heard of, starring James Franco, Selena Gomez, and Rob Duval. Romantic comedy All Roads Lead to Rome, which stars Sarah Jessica Parker. Futuristic sci-fi film Andron, with Alec Baldwin, Danny Glover, and Michelle Ryan. <laughs> Action thriller 2047 Sights of Death, starring Michael Madsen and Rutger Hoyer. A film called The Humbling, starring Al Pacino and Greta Gerwig. And the crime thriller Hope Lost with Danny Trejo and Misha Barton. What are these films? Wow. They Misha just... Barton and Danny Trejo in a movie at last. Yeah. I think Hope Lost is one of the slightly more plausible sounding movies. 2047 Sights of Death. Like, that cannot be a real film. It's got to be a working title. Yeah. Andron. I don't know. They all sound like posters in the background. Is that t- is 2047 Sights of Death the sequel to Wong Kai Wai's film 2046? <laughs> <laughs> The third pardon is <laughs> in the mood for love, 2046. 2047? Uh, Sides of, of death. death. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I hope someone appreciates my one car wide joke there. I- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Appreciated it. Thanks, man. So it seems that we're always talking about Edgar Wright these days. He keeps on announcing new projects. I love him. I love him. He's always the news. <laughs> always news. <laughs> Perpetual news machine. So anyway, the latest addition to his ever ever burgeoning slate of films he's going to make is an animation. A DreamWorks animation of producing this film, which was in the works for a while, called Me and My Shadow, which uh, was developed to a certain extent to the point that Bill Hader and Josh Gad did some voice work for it, but it's now been shelved and completely refought. But they're like, there's something in the shadow idea. We've got to make a movie about shadows. Yeah. and Just so, get Josh Gad out of here. Exactly. They've... Uh, Given Edgar Wright Corn said, Do you want to make this movie, like animation that's about uh, sh- shadows? The original one was called Me and My Shadow. It was about a guy, Shadow, who's much cooler than the guy he's shadowing and oh, okay. tries to break free and like take over the real guy's life. Interesting. It's that kind of youth and revolt type idea. Exactly. But a bit more like surreal. So Edgar's going to direct it and he's writing the script in the moment with David Williams. The man's a genius. The man's a genius. I mean, he's never written a film before and like just writes sketch comedy, doesn't he? But. I don't know. It's an interesting choice of um I guess he's a successful child author now, right? So maybe they think... Yes, he's going to be... bring the more child... Some of Edgar Wright's stuff is really for grown-ups. <laughs> so they've got to get a sort of baby man in. Yeah. 
to help bring the level down to the kids, you know? Well, Edgar Wright's, like, style is a bit animation-like already. It's very kind of quick, cartoony. Well, Edgar Wright started in animation. I saw, remember watching his short movie about the little ball of plaster scene. I do remember that. That was great. It was. I'm not a fan of David Williams' books. I haven't read them. This is very much a case of judging a book by its cover. But, but judging by the cover... I don't like how the Quentin Blake illustrated. It's like, don't trick a child into thinking you're Roald Dahl, David Williams. It's like, oh, I'm going to read the BFG. What the fuck, granny gangster? What the fuck? <laughs> you fucking kidding me? You fucking... Where's the fucking pathos? Where's the fucking thing that's going to make me cry? Fuck you, Williams. You're not dull. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> most children react this way. Children up and down the country are <laughs> livid. In the most profane way. I'll just read the sequel to uh, Willy Wonka. Oh, what the fuck? The, the the transgender kid or whatever it was called. Boy in a dress. But to David Williams has, you know, he's a bestseller. I think, you know, the proof's in the pudding. And he's written loads of them. Mm. And they're all selling well. There's got to be something in it, right? It must be. It must be connecting with some kind of audience. Yeah, that's quite a market-oriented way to look at it. You know? It's- yeah, that's what the suits if you uh, judge the value, saying. If you <laughs> judge the value of the children's books by the amount of money <laughs> it's made from them, then it's pretty good. Yeah, so, uh, anyway, that. great work, David. Can't keep it up. Keep it up, buddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack. And telephone friends so you know where she's at. Right, that's enough. Now back to film chat. Danny and I had another wonderful film night, film film date, cinema date this I week. I love our film dates. We went to see Steve Jobs. We're both big Sorkin fans. We love the way his characters run up and down and talk to each other in a sort of aggressive way. And they're always correcting each other and, and it's very snappy. It's very exciting dialogue. It's a bit like us. A bit like us, a exactly. A bit like this podcast. Um, and uh, so we went to see Steve Jobs. Did I say that already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which is a biopic starring Michael Fassbender. It's about the legendary Apple man who um, died a couple of years ago. And uh, it centers around three different product launches, seminal jobs launches, in which he was delivering big presentations about um, consecutively the Macintosh, some product called Next, which I'd never heard of, and the iMac. Yeah, it's, it's like a sort of theatrical device where the five most important people in his life find him and uh, argue with him before each launch. Which yeah. uh, is Steve Wozniak, the sort of co-founder of Apple, played by Seth Rogen. John Scully, who was the CEO of Apple, played by Jeff Daniels. Jordan Hoffman. Or is it Jordan? Jordan Hoffman? Jordan? Um, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, Jordan, Jordan Hoffman, who's uh, Kate Winslet with a sort of slightly dodgy Eastern European accent as like his aide. Yeah. And uh, his daughter, Lisa. Yes, exactly. At various different ages. So, uh... should we say, should we do a clip? Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's have a clip of some of the fast, exciting talking that's in the film. You can't write code. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen from Xerox Park. Jeff Raskin was the leader of the Mac team before you threw him off his own project. Everything, someone else designed the box. So how come 10 times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? I play the orchestra. And you're a good musician. You sit right there. You're the best in your role. So I think that a lot of uh, whether you're going to enjoy this movie a lot comes down to your views on Aaron Sorkin. He is suffusing the film on like every level 
in a in a way that for someone who's familiar with Sorkinisms can be a little bit distracting, I think. Yes, I think this is very much his movie. It's it's basically like a play, really. It's like a sort of film play, and it's wall to wall dialogue. It's a very stripped down plot. It's trying to by avoiding all the trappings of biopics is essentially just characters talking in rooms. Yeah. And so it's it's pure Sorkin. And I uh, my opinion of him fluctuates between it's sometimes fine to incredibly irritating. And uh, the dialogue is just not up to scratch, I would say. I, I, I thought it was a relatively mediocre Sorkin effort. It sort of lacked um, memorable zingers. And if you watch the... Uh videos on youtube of him kind of plagiarizing himself when he reuses exactly the same kind of lines in all of his different works um you can get a sense that he is very much repeating himself in terms of not only the individual lines but also the kind of characters and the beats of the scenes and the way they work out and i sort of feel like he's such a prolific man and he's written so many movies and so many tv episodes that he's kind of run out of new things to do and he's just gone back into his Sorkin toolbox and he's produced all the standard stuff that he does to make his scenes tick and he just does his tricks. And, yeah, uh, this is particularly a problem with this film though because it's essentially the same scene three times, the sort yeah. of structure. So it's the same five arguments three times and each argument itself is very similar to each other and so it's very repetitive and I would say the dialogue also suffers from a problem where there's a lot of minutiae about the tech or, you know, the curtains aren't opening or the lights aren't going on at time, uh, which is sort of fine. But then it makes the scenes which are obviously about the character or emotion just stick out like a sore thumb. So it's like, you're just talking about this and he's like, okay, tell me about your childhood or something. Yeah, And it's definitely. just very clumsily done. Yeah, because you feel a bit like they had to shoehorn in the emotional stuff. You know, there'll be a whole scene of him working out how to get the computer to say hello or something like that. And then it'll be like, your girl, your ex-girlfriend is here to see you. And then she gets um, wheeled in and then they have a sort of emotional scene. Yeah, I would say it's interesting to compare this with The Social Network, which is another Sorkin scripted film about, in the broadest possible terms, is about a really smart guy who was trying to connect the world in some way, but who suffers from social problems themselves and can't connect, uh, connect with people in real life. Yeah, I don't think it's even that broad. I think like, they're very similar But I think the ideas. key difference is that I felt that Aaron Sorkin doesn't like Mark Zuckerberg, but he loves Steve Jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think something which makes the movie a bit, left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth thinking about it was that he uh, starts off with this sort of uncompromising portrait of like, an asshole and the way he treats his ex-partner, Chrisanne, and horrible. In, it's horrible. And he initially just denies that he's um, his daughter's uh, father. He's like, he's not my kids. And so that's sort of like horrible, but it's kind of morbidly intriguing. He's like, why would you do that? He's like a rich guy. He was an orphan himself. You know, there's like a story there. But the character of Chris Ann, who's very ably played by Catherine Watterson, she's like really good in the movie, is somewhat vilified by the rest of the movie. And it's a bit like, She's like this crazy bitch, and he was right about it all along. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you it's can make bit, the, it's really uncomfortable. You can make the argument that the movie's from Steve Jobs' perspective, but because it's so stripped down, everything's in the that's in the movie is there for a purpose, and there's no ambiguity to anything. So it's really it's a, really a mean a, the way a, she's yeah, treated. Yeah, it's like oh, you were right all along. Like you should have you know flee this crazy bitch. 
Where it's like, whether her personal life has got nothing to do with it, the problem is you rejected your kid. That's the thing. And they try and sort of mitigate that somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was like, Ugh. they really give him a kind of free pass. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that part of it is down to, you can kind of tell um, that Sorkin has some slightly old fashioned ideas about gender roles, which really filter into um, his work and are a bit unpleasant. And part of it is to do these, these ideas about um, men and like what makes men men and how manly they are and stuff like that. And it's because all, all, his whole thing is about this sort of dick waving contest and people butting heads, them cutting each other off and shutting each other down. And uh, he likes Steve Jobs because he is, you know, quick witted and he like, you know, best people verbally and that kind of thing. And he's like a genius. Yeah. I and think... so that makes it okay when he is, um, you know, incredibly unpleasant and. What I, my like personal fear on it is that like he's very it seems like he's very influenced by sort of 1930s screwball comedies but also the sexual politics of those films mm. so there's like fast talking women but they're always it's a bit like the end of his girl Friday she's like actually I do love you yeah 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 it's like and the whole movie is great and then she's at the and then end. at the very end it's like that sort of slightly old fashioned way of like thinking. the women are allowed to compete but they can't win yeah they have to lose at the end um, it, it is it is a bit it is like that but I would say the acting is really excellent Michael Fassbender is very commanding. It's like, you know, it's like a host of brilliant actors. I thought Seth Rogen was really good in it. Yeah, Seth Rogen was good. And I wish there'd been a bit more, this is maybe less a review, more what I wish the movie was about. But I think an interesting thing about Apple, which the movie sort of very briefly touched upon, is this idea that there were two hippies in a basement and this sort of West Coast counterculture ideology gave birth to the biggest corporation that's taken over the world. Yeah. And there's very sort of like hippie ideas of like connecting and love and using computers as like a force for good. Is that that's kind of the interesting part of that company? Because I don't really give a shit about whether the what size the box is or all this technical stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I liked, I thought the Seth Rogen Fazbender scenes were the best ones because he was the character least like Steve Jobs. And everyone else was a bit like Steve Jobs in a way. Whereas yeah. Seth Rogen is just like the most affable, nice guy in the world. Yeah, definitely. Although their scenes are a bit repetitive. Like they just had the same argument loads and loads of times at increasing rates of angst. Yeah. But it's like when Seth Rogen argues with somebody, when Steve wasn't arguing with somebody, it's like he feels like he's somebody who doesn't argue with people. Mm. Whereas everyone feels like people who argue all the time. Yeah. Whereas he's like a non-confrontational guy. Yeah, I agree. It was quite um, well directed, I thought. Like, it looked very nice. It was nice to sort of photograph and everything. I felt a bit like Danny Boyle was so reined in by the script that like whenever he had opportunity to do anything, he just took it. There's like bits where like stuff projects on the walls just because it's like I'm just I can't shoot faces anymore. I've got to fucking just you know. No, he was doing his best <laughs> to jazz up the wandering up and down corridors. So it doesn't look like a West Wing episode. Maybe his direction is the sort of just in the performances. Like I think his background's in theatre, Danny Ball, and like the performances are really excellent. Yeah, and you know it's all technically very well put together. I kind of want to see it again to zero one on Kate Winslet's accent though, because I'm sure that she only developed a Polish accent after one of the characters mentioned that she was Polish. <laughs> I was sure she was American for about half an hour and then someone said that she was Polish and then suddenly she had this European accent. That's my suspicion. Yeah, I think the problem is that like the movie starts at like 10 and there's nowhere to go. So like it's always just before this launch, everyone's on edge, everyone's yelling at each other and there's... Yeah, like that structure avoids some of the problems with biopics when they're sprawling and they have no structure and they kind of go nowhere and there's too much information in them. So it avoids that. It, it comes with its own set of problems which is that it's repetitive and it's predictable. So five stars.
say five stars, five five thousand stars. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it astoundingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Danny, the lady in the van. How? She's over there. <laughs> oh, you mean that movie? <laughs> so. You know, I like to take my uh, mother, my ancient mother, to the cinema every once in a while. You go to see films with two different people, right? Me and your mother. You mean, um, yeah. And my mum likes to watch films where there are old people in them. She likes, she's part of the Grey Pound mm. lucrative market. Um, so The Lady in the Van, this is the latest Nicholas Heitner, Alan Bennett film adaptation of a play they did. Uh, it's based on a play of the same name that was produced in the late 90s itself a adaptation of Alan Bennett's sort of memoirs of a uh, period in his life where he moved into Camden and then uh, in this van in the streets was a lady called Miss Shepherd who was sort of known as like a local eccentric and uh, Alan Bennett uh, half out of kindness half out of guilt because his own mother was in Yorkshire and he and I know some appeases sort of guilt towards abandoning one old lady, uh, allowed her to stay in his drive uh, on a temporary basis, and she stayed there for 15 years till she died. And the movie is about uh, that period in his life and also about Miss Shepherd and how this eccentric old lady came to live in a van. And here's a clip of Alan Bennett offering his uh, driveway to Miss Shepherd. I don't know, I don't know. It might, it might not be convenient. No, I've thought it over. Believe me, Miss Shepherd, it, it's all right. Just till you sort yourself out. Well, not convenient for you. Convenient for me. You're not doing me a favour, you know. I have got other fish to fry. A man on the pavement told me if I went south of the river, I'd be welcomed with open arms. I was about to do her a good turn, but as ever... It was not without thoughts of strangulation. What a kind old guy. What a kind old guy. So I think this film is a perfectly enjoyable sort of 90 minutes with some very strong acting, particularly by Dame Maggie Smith. But I would say it's a little messy and it never really knows what kind of film it is. So the film has this very theatrical device of there are two Alan Bennett's. What? Uh, I know, right? There's one Alan Ben in real life. And the idea is there's there's writer Alan and there's real life Alan. And writer Alan is always at the typewriter or writing notebooks and commenting on stuff. And he's brutally honest and life Alan argues with him. So when like he lets Miss Shepard into his drive, he's like, you're only doing this because you're guilty about your mother. And he's like, shut up. And uh, they have this long debate how he's not going to write about her. He's like, you know, I'm not, I'm fed up of just writing about domestic situations. I want to write about stuff that I just haven't experienced myself. And he, inevitably, he ends up writing about it. And the sort of main theme of the movie, really, from his perspective, is that sort of life gets in the way. And whatever your plans are, you know, literally an old lady will turn up and, you know, distract you. Yeah. Uh, that's probably not true for most people. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally what will happen, regardless of what your plans are. So, so <laughs> you can argue this sort of slightly messy structure is thematically on point because it's a film which isn't got a you know narrative going one way or the other. You know, stuff just happens. But it's it's basically it's obviously a dramatization of a memoir and not really a cohesive narrative. So it's a little unsatisfying. Like I know, life doesn't obey the three act structure. I guess. So the film's trailer promises a sort of comedy about a cantankerous old lady, and for the most part that's true of the movie 
but it shifts the deal with the underlying tragedy of the situation because something awful must have happened for this elderly woman to end up being homeless in a van. And I would say uh, Maggie Smith's absolutely brilliant in it. And it feels a bit like, you know, getting Maggie Smith to play a sort of grumpy old lady is like, you know... They don't come more cantankerous <laughs> than Dame Maggie Smith. But it's like, it's very easy to undersell how good she is at that. And it's uh, really amazing how... It could easily just be a cartoon, but she always invests it with enough reality that you completely believe her character. And when the movie shifts into like dealing with the sort of history of how she ended up there, like her performance is amazing. And I would say the film is not as good at traversing those two halves of that character as she is, mm. and that it doesn't live up to her performance. And I would say it's also a problem as as with like the History Boys, which obviously very much a play. This is very much a piece of like non-film writing in that there's this narrator by Alan Bennett and two Alan Bennett's and there's a bit of a sort of um wait he narrates it as well in narr- addition to being in the film twice <laughs> well exactly this is part of the problem because they're obviously so in love with Alan Bennett's writing and his you know witticisms and observations you must be hearing his incredibly <laughs> distinctive voice a lot well that's the thing it's like it's all very entertaining because he's such you know witty guy but it, I feel bad for Alex Jennings, the actor playing Alan Bennett, because like his performance is somewhat reduced to like a bit of a sort of impression because yeah. they don't rely on him to do any sort of heavy lifting. Yeah. And there are like moments where like about his relationship, because it's it's good how it's not like he's like a nice guy. It's out of sort of guilt that he does this and they're never really friends. Mm. And he finds her a bit of annoyance, but it's just he's so sort of fucking British about it. That he can't get rid of her. But uh, yeah, like a lot of the sort of key moments in the relationship is like kind of saddled with this voiceover. And like Alex Jennings is a very good actor, but they don't really let him do enough. And I, would, I feel like Maggie Smith has, you know, she just like runs away with the park because she has so much to do. It's also another thing I liked about it was the way the entire cast of the History Boys was in it. It's like a big national theatre loving. I'm surprised and, it's, a, it's got that much of a sprawling cast. This. Yeah, well, it's funny. There's all cameos and there's like a hilarious sort of... Um, it must be a very knowing joke that like all of Alan Bennett's boyfriends and lovers are played by the History Boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's know, great. It's kind of great. So it's kind of like it's fine. And I think Maggie Smith makes it. She's always watchable, but she's particularly brilliant in this. But... It's. I felt like I was watching a book. I never felt. It never felt like a film, and it never really finds a tone or particular narrative groove to it. So it's a bit of a mess, but a pleasant one. A pleasant mess. A pleasant mess. Like the inside of her van. Yesterday I bumped into Imelda Staunton. She was up with her dog, and we got talking. I asked her what she does when she isn't acting. She said she likes podcasts for relaxing. Imelda, when you're in the mood, what do you listen to? She said, I listen to one podcast. I listen to one podcast. All the other ones can kiss my ass. Because I listen to one podcast. Film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat. So, Danny, I've got a fun surprise for you. I got in touch with friend of the show, Woody Allen. Woody? Woody, because I wanted to mark the 50th episode with something special. And he was kind enough to record a little message for us. Oh, brilliant. And um, I just thought... You might want to hear what he had to say. Absolutely. Hey, hey fellas, um, Sam asked me to record a special message to mark your 50th episode, so congrats. That's really terrific. I have to say, you remind me of an old friend of mine who started a small business in Red Hook selling little ceramic busts of Edgar Rice Burroughs. She had no customers. Her product was inferior. 
and uh, she used to do these unconvincing celebrity impersonations all the time. But she never gave up. She was slinging those little busts of Edgar Rice Burroughs for 50 years until um, one day they demolished a building and she caught a cough of some kind off of a cloud of ceramic dust. And that sadly turned out to be fatal. I forget where I was going with this, but in any case, keep up the good work, fellas. I gotta go now. I'm writing the script for my next movie. It's called Cassandra's Dream 2, The Revenge of Ian Blaine. I think this is the one they're going to remember me for. Uh, see you later, guys. Yes, Ian Blaine was my favorite character in Cassandra's Dream. <laughs> <laughs> more, than, more than Terry Blaine? <laughs> Terry Blaine was an excellent character as well, but I think just pipped by Ian Blaine, who was... <laughs> We should really... have a whole episode just discussing Cassandra's Dream. Yeah, Cassandra's Dream special. Oh, God. Can we do a sort of film chat book club where we uh, pick a movie, ask our listeners to watch it, and then we do a whole podcast about it? That'd be awesome. And just in time, our producer, Katie, has arrived. With a much-needed alcohol. On a, on a sleigh pulled by reindeer. <laughs> I brought a bottle of Carver. We're having a party. It's the 50th episode. We don't normally drink on the job. So, <laughs> except before, <laughs> after, and during the show. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Bit of carvel around, chaps. Carver Thanks chaps. so much, Sam. You're welcome. It's going to sound like we're on um, the beach or something. Bit of surf. Here's to another 50 episodes, guys. I just want to say it's been a pleasure working with a pair of you. I want to say thanks to all our listeners for sticking with us. Absolutely. New and old converts alike, especially the ones who've been listening since episode one. All right. See you next week for the 51st episode of Film Chat. Let's do it. Just do it! Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it! Make your dreams come true! Just do it! Some people dream of success while you're going to wake up and work hard at it. Nothing is impossible! You're not going to stop there. No, what are you waiting for? Do it! Just do it! Yes, you can! Just do it! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.